I've titled this word, A Big Request to Follow. And I've given it such titles because as I sat and marinated upon the words of Jesus in a very humanistic translation, love folk as I have loved you. That's a big task. That's a challenging task. But if you grasp the context in which it is spoken, it enables us to have a better shot at following through. One of the best movies at the top of the list for me that I love, it's old now, but it still has such impacting relevance for community is the movie Soul Food. I love Soul Food because it depicts for me not just a single Mother's Day, but it's an expression of what a mother does every day. If you've never seen the movie, it's about a family who was now under the auspices of its matriarch. They called her Big Mama Joe. She was a caring and loving woman and had these daughters who were always bickering at one another. There was one who was quite successful as a lawyer. There's another who was probably not as successful but was an entrepreneur by doing and being a hairstylist. And then there was one in between who was trying to, I believe, find herself in the process of her journey. But Big Mama was the anchor that held the family together. She was an unbelievable woman. Every Sunday, she had Sunday dinner. Everyone was required to come to the dinner where they gathered around the table and broke bread together as she sat at the head. Just for a moment, if we would just reflect how much value we probably would add back within our family circle if we made deliberate efforts every week to meet with everybody in our families. If we had a family dinner every Sunday. I know in the midst of our busyness and everyone's got directions they're going, but, but listen to the impact of this. If we met every week with our matriarch and patriarch, if we met with our fellow family members, brothers, sisters, cousins, we gather around the table, broke bread, what would that do for us? Our self-esteem, our camaraderie as a family, and then our deliberate loving of one another. Well, she demanded that. But Big Mama, like I said, was, was typical. Her grandson, Ahmad, made the comment as he narrates through the movie that Big Mama never had enemies. And if she did, she would simply invite them over for some green beans, sweet potato pie, southern fried chicken, and whatever difference they had would be gone by the time they left. All because of a meal and what can happen at the dinner table. Big Mama also was old school. Health-wise, she was a diabetic. And the critical turning scene for her life in the movie was her being there preparing dinner and her arm brazed over the open fire and was burned and she never knew it. The rest of the children standing around quickly ran and said, Mama, could you not feel that? How did you not know? And of course, old school, she says, all I need is some butter and some turpentine. And that would fix her situation. 
Of course, they took her to the hospital only to discover after a diagnosis that her diabetes was progressing. Progressing enough where it's beginning to affect her blood circulation and she was a candidate for leg amputation. Big Mama continued to do as she does, except when they, after much reluctance on her part, agreed to have her leg amputated, she suffered a stroke while on the operating table. The stroke sinks her into a coma, and she's in the coma for several weeks. But it's, just, it's as if she fought to come back for the, from the coma just to see her grandson. For in the meantime, the family falls apart. And remember, at the table eating every Sunday was not just all the persons to whom everybody liked, but there were some Judases at the table as well. There was a relationship that took place between one of the daughter's husbands and a cousin, and it sort of created a problem, obviously, in the family but he was allowed to be at the table. She was allowed to be at the table. Big Mama comes back from the coma and Ahmad, who stands by his grandmama's side, talking with her every day, really encouraging her on in her sleep that she need to come back because the family needs her. That's their mother. She opens her eyes long enough to tell him, don't let the family forget Sunday dinner. Get them all together. Long story short, she dies. All great matriarchs die. In fact, all mothers die at some point in time. But the impression that she left was unbelievable. Most pointed, at the dinner table, she taught her family a critical lesson. A single finger pointing in any direction has little effect. But when all five of those fingers are circled together as a fist, they can launch a mighty blow to life's challenges. Telling her family that you're not a family unless you stick together and unless you love one another as I have loved you. It's the same context in John 13 that Jesus delivers this message to those 12 family members who are close to him that we call disciples. They are students. They are learners of life. They are like you and I, trying to learn their way about what life is, and they make mistakes quite often. They were sitting with the Lord of life, being able to witness miracle after miracle, and there were times when they still didn't get the lesson because they were human. And yet Jesus, in this 13th chapter, beginning in, verse, in chapter 12, started this process of pointing toward and then demonstrating what he will later mean by loving one another. As the Lord of life, the God of creation, he's at the supper table. Passover was about to start. Passover was a meal in which the Hebrews celebrated because it reminded them constantly of God's deliverance from Egypt. It was to help them remember that at least once a year, come together, circle around this table, and don't forget how God opened the door for us. I mentioned earlier that it would be incredibly life-changing, I think, if we had a meal once a week, if nothing else, to reflect upon how blessed we are and how God has brought your family. And if there's success in your family where you have moved upwardly, you're no longer a product 
of the hood, but now you live in an upscale neighborhood. You eat well, you drive well, you wear well, you work well. And we are actually not that busy where we can't encourage. In fact, isn't it amazing how if your mother is still living, God be praised into that glory when you tell her, Mama, I want you to fix me such and such. Man, it lights up their life. I can pick up the phone right now and call my mama and say, Mama, listen, I'll be over in about two hours. This is what I want you to do. I want you to put me on a pot of greens, hook me up some spoon bread on the stove. Don't give me that jiffy mix stuff. Hook it up with the cornmeal on top of the stove. Make me some fresh corn, shuck it off. You know, get it off of the shuck and put it there. Put some cream in it. Get me some of your good macaroni and cheese. Fry me some chicken, whatever you do. And then at the end, make me your good butter greasy pound cake. My mama will look at her, watch and say, now baby, now you have to give mama a little bit more time than that, but you come over about an hour more later. And mama gonna have it all ready. Mama is gonna change her schedule. Because mama wants to make sure that she satisfies her son. Now on my mother's side, I'm the youngest of two. I got an older brother. And I think if my brother did the same, that made the same phone call, she would do the same. But I know if I make it, I know what's gonna happen. <laughs> on my father's side, I'm the oldest of three. So that ain't gonna happen. My father's deceased, but he wouldn't do nothing anyway. He ain't gonna do no cooking for nothing, you hear me? He gonna give you some money until you go down to the restaurant and get you something to eat, but he's not gonna cook. But that's mother for you. Because mama does something different at the table. I shared with him this morning, my grandmama, bless her memory, I haven't seen her now in 50 years, but I do remember she would never eat until everybody else has eaten. She would stand back at the doorway of the door and watch everybody else eat after she's cooked all day long. And I would often hear my mother and my aunts, uncles ask her, won't you come out and sit down and eat, mama? And she says, no, I want y'all to eat. And when they were finished, I remember seeing her. She'd get her a little plate, sit down and eat while all of us washed the dishes. Because there's something about her having gratification that my children have eaten. That's all that counts to me. Because motherly love is sacrificial. She's painting the picture. If you're going to be a mother who understands what it means to love, you got to be willing to sacrifice. And I do remember my grandmother was a domestic worker. She cleaned houses and she would bring home laundry and she would press shirts day after day. Never understood what that meant until I got older, but I, I now understand. She was doing all that to make sure that my aunts and my uncle had everything they needed. They never went to college, didn't know anything about higher education, but there was something certain. They had food on the table, clothes on their backs, and they had a mother who taught them morality and ethics and then she gave in her expressed love of being sacrificial the stability of being loved. She taught them how love can get you through a lot of things in life. But she further made sure she taught us in her own way that as a family, you will never survive if y'all don't get along. I had an aunt and uncle who just, just fight, fought all the time, all just fought, 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 and she would get mad at my grandmama and slam her fist on the table and look at him and tell him, I told y'all to stop that fighting. And she broke them, y'all. Y'all want, want me to tell you how she broke them? They kept fighting and kept fussing. You're not going to believe this, but it's my hand before the Lord. She broke them. She did something that I thought later was unethical, 
and ungodly, but it worked. Y'all want to know what she did? They kept bickering one day at the table, so she made them get up. And when she made them get up, she made them both pull their pants down. And when she made them both pull their pants down, she made them kiss each other's posterior. And do you not know from that day forward, my mind can remember, we never had that problem at the table. In fact, I can still remember when I was watching this, I was eating, and when I saw actually what they did, I stopped in midair. Fork still right there. And my grandmama said, now from now on, that's what you're going to have to do if y'all going to keep fighting as brothers and sisters. But later, once I learned life a little more, I equated her move to Jesus. I know for all y'all holy people that doesn't, it's not going to fit. But watch this. It fitted for me. Jesus instead, knowing that he had an, a betrayer, a traitor at the table, he did something. He first, as the Lord of life, put a towel in his hand took a basin of water and went around and washed the disciples' feet. And as I alluded to this morning, you, you would do this normally before you start the meal because customary, traveling through the course of the day or even going around town, you could be clean after having taken a bath, but by the time you get to your destination, the obvious has occurred, your feet would be dirty because sandals was the norm wear. So before you had a meal, they would go around and wash each other's feet. Actually, they didn't do each other's. Normally that was done by an appointed slave of the household. But in this instance, Jesus breaks protocol. He doesn't do it before the meal. He done it during the meal. He washes their feet during the meal, which is out of order because the disciples are wondering, why are you doing this now? But Jesus has this incredible way of making an effect in your memory when he steps out of the box. Can you imagine the people who were accustomed to medicinal aspects of seeing folk healed and when they witnessed Jesus with a blind man take spit from the ground? or take dirt from the ground and spit in it and then put it on a man's eyes. That, that's just out of the box. I don't know about you, but I don't want no physician now talking about, Mr. Murphy, it looks like you might have a cataract on your eye. He goes outside and gets himself a handful of dirt, comes back in and spits in it and says, so I'm going to give you the most latest salve possible for your healing of cataract. Uh-uh, I mean, I can see, but I can see well enough that you ain't doing that procedure. But that's what Jesus does. Shocked effect, some may call it. And what he does is washes the feet in the middle of the meal. And in going around to wash the feet, you read the story in John 13. Peter, of course, is reluctant because he cannot imagine the Lord of life, the healer of all of life, washing feet. A low service action. But if you read the Gospels, you'll remember that Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but I come to serve. And so as he's serving, and Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't, you don't have any part of me. In other words, if I don't wash your feet, you don't know what it means to be humble. 
and to lower yourself to embrace others. Peter must have caught the drift because he says, read the text, not just my feet, Lord, but my whole body, everything about me. And then Jesus says, some of y'all don't realize this, you're clean, but not all y'all are cleaned. They didn't know he was referring to Judas. You're not clean. So he makes some very powerful statements here in chapter 3, um, chapter 13. And he says in verse 7, he says, what I'm doing now, you won't understand. And I did not understand why you would have siblings kiss each other's rear end. But I do now. And that's what he says. You won't get it now, but later on in life, you'll see why I've done what I've done. Because in doing so, you have to humble yourself, first of all, to follow mama's instructions. See, do you hear the request? Pull your pants down and kiss someone else's posterior. Mama, have you lost your mind? Well, you had two choices. First choice was follow mama's instruction and enjoy the benefit or not follow my grandmama's instructions. And you really didn't want to take option B. My grandmama was not a very, how should we say, light person in handing out discipline. Uh, she was not only once a farmhand, which meant that working was not an issue for her, but she was an expert at plaiting, putting hair together, i.e. putting switches together. She was an expert. I did that a couple of times, and I don't know why, but they would always come loose at the end. I'm, I'm not doing something right. I don't know what it is. But when Grandmama did it, the end just stood there, bound together with the other end, as if it know, oh, Lucille got us doing a purpose again. Let's make sure we carry through on this purpose. And when she struck, she struck, baby. I mean, you knew that she struck. You could take that option, but it would have been more painful than just simply and let it be. They grew up not ever, ever having a conflict at grandmama's table ever again. Because they had to humble themselves. And Jesus is challenging us and asking us, are you willing to humble yourself even when you know there's a traitor at your table? Because all of us, when we gather around with family, we, we know that we don't get along with everybody in the family. There's somebody that you just hate to see come. And when you send the invitation out, you know they're going to show up. You hoping, you praying. Car break down, they get sick, they get called into work, something happens. Nope. There they are, the first ones at the table. Listen to what Jesus says. A new command I give you. I want you to love one another. It's the community. It's those at the table. And Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Verse 2 of chapter 13 says that the devil had already put into his heart as I told him this morning, I don't believe Judas was born to portray Jesus. I believe that Judas, after listening to Satan's constant knock, opened the door and Satan came in and planted what had to be planted. I don't believe anybody is born to be uh, absent from eternity in terms of with God. That, that would destroy John 3.16. Whosoever will. That, that would destroy that. That means that someone doesn't fit in to whosoever. And my Bible says that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short 
of the glory of God. There's none righteous, which means that no one is categorized other than a sinner. And so no one is born to be absent from you. There's an invitation. Come now, says Isaiah, and let us reason together. But verse 2 says that Satan got it into his heart that he was going to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew it. I asked him this morning, I'm going to ask you, if you knew that there was someone sitting at your dinner table who was going to shoot you within the next hour, would you actually let them stay at the table? Yeah, you did, just like they did. They tried to act holy and sanctified as if they're going to pray it through. And I answered it for them. Not only no, but I gave them a little explicit before the no. You know, like Harry, Edmund, Larry, Lowe. Y'all, y'all, you, you, you got that? I know y'all smart. I figured you would. I just thought I'd tell you like that. Because I, I know you wouldn't want me to tell it the other way, so... But no, no, I, I, in fact, he had to go right then, out, out, because I know what you're going to do, out. But not Jesus, he knows, he knows. In fact, because around the table, they are all stationed in a particular order, and John, of course, is close to Jesus, and the Bible indicates to us that Peter is not close there because Peter must be sitting across the way. Because when you continue to read John 13, it says, when Jesus told them that one of them would betray me, Peter looked at John and says, and by motioning with his hand, ask him, who, who, who is it going to be? Who, who is it? Which one of them is it? So he's not close enough to ask Jesus, but he motions to John, ask him. We want to know, who is it? In fact, only John says that because if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each give the indication they all looked at one another and asked the question, is it I? Is it me? I, am, I, am I the one? But John says, no, we, we know who it is. In fact, Jesus says, here's how you know. I'm going to take this bread and I'm going to dip it. And when I dip it into this wine, I'm going to give it to the betrayer. And when he gives it to Judas, the Bible says, in fact, follow me in the text. Don't take my word for it. Look, look at what the text says. Because Jesus wants to make an impression upon us. And here's what he says. When he washed their feet, he raises the question to them in, in verse 12. Do you know what I've done for you? And one reason why I'm trying to get you to see the value of why if your mama is still living, get around the table with her on Sunday because you might want to ask her, mama, why did you do so much of what you've done for us? Or you might want to get your heart together and ask God at the table, Lord, why have you blessed us so much? As bad as I have been. As much as I have denied and rejected and decided not to do what you've told me to do, yet you still give me your grace. And you still let me experience your mercy. And you still give me your love unconditionally. And might I add, my mama is still here. Do you know why I've done this for you? Sometimes I have to ask the Lord, why you keep on, why you keep blessing me after all I've done? Do you know why I've done this for you? Look at what he says. He says in verse 14, I, I've washed your feet, so I want you to wash one another's feet. I gave you this as an example. I did it so you can see how it's to be done. And listen, if the king of kings can wash the feet of his servant, it's just an act of humility. And Jesus is really challenging us to ask ourselves a question. Are we humble enough to love even though we know we're not going to get love back? What a deep question. But he then tells us in verse 17, if you do this, you're going to have a blessed life. See, I think it's a big question, a big request of Jesus because, Lord, how you are, you, you get to love Judas because you know 
who he is, you know what he's going to do, and you know how the story's going to end, but you're asking me to do that, and I don't know how the story's going to end. Why do I have to do that? And then he, he capsized it in verse 17. If you do it, you're going to have a blessed life. You're going to live in abundance and freedom. You're going to live in joy because you've learned how to love and embrace people who are not going to reciprocate. Now, we're taught in our Western society, you know, and we use the Bible to justify it. Give, and it shall be given back to you. Do unto others as you have others do unto you. And both of those texts are admirable. But we know the reality is, it's not going to work out like that all the time. Now, does it? Because there are some folk that you've loved and who still can't stand your presence in their sight. Or it could be vice versa. You can't really stand their presence in your sight. There's some people you poured into and you know you're not going to get it back, but you have the expectation that you will. It's just a rule of thumb for me, for family. Whenever you give something away, don't look for it back. It's not coming back. If it does, hurrah, shout for joy. But a rule, generally, it ain't coming back. Don't look for it. And if you've ever had family members that passed away and you've had to pay for the funeral, you know what I'm talking about. So Jesus quotes this passage from Psalm 41. He reflects David who says, I got a friend who's sitting at my table and he's going to lift up his heel against me. I already know it. I already know it. I'm trying to press that point on you. I already know it. But verse 22 says, the disciples began looking at one another because they were lost as to who Jesus was talking about. But look at the phrase, one another. Because what God is trying to do is spark us to recognize the one another theme that has to exist among us. We are often taught too often that you have to care for number one and that's it. No, that's not completely true. I'm going to look out for me. I have to first, but there's something about provision that God gives so that you can give to others. And one of those provisions have to be, happens to be divine love. And you and I are sitting here today because somebody loved us. Somebody loved us even when we were unlovable. There were mothers who loved children when those children were hard to love, but that was her gift. Her gift in this life was motherhood, and she loved even when it was hard to love. And that's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, I know Judas is there, but I got to love him like I love all the rest of you. Now, here's the question, Zion. Do we love like that? Somebody was honest in the church because I heard you. No. <laughs> Do we really love when we know we're not getting love back or we may not get it back? Now, somebody might say, what does loving mean, pastor? What does it mean when Jesus says love one another? Well, without giving you all the nuances, let me give you the simple definition. Can we really accept people as they are? That's it. Can I really embrace them as they are? Tolerate them as they are? Can I really give them the godness in me as they are, knowing that they may not in return reciprocate? Because that's what he does to Judas. Look at the text. He loves him at the table. And Jesus says in verse 27, after giving Judas his morsel of the bread, Satan got into him. And Jesus says, I already knew it was you, so whatever you're going to do, get to it. Get it done. So Jesus identified the corporate at the table and told him, go ahead, get it done. 
leave so everybody else can see who you are. And look what the text says. He, he had to leave. Verse 28, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for the, what purpose he had said this. For some were supposed to, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying these things, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else give it to the poor. Nope, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. The Bible says in verse 30, and soon after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. But here's what I want you to get, holding the bread. He went out holding what Jesus had given him, the bread. Can I challenge you to think theologically a little deep? I wonder if he wonder, this is the last something I'm going to hold that God has given me. And I'm holding it because I know I am about to do the worst thing I could possibly do in my life, betray him. And yet, he still tells the disciples, verse 34, I want you to love each other. Even after what you just witnessed. Because let's just be honest, in a family circle, when you see that kind of behavior, what do we normally want to do as family members? We want to jump on that person who act like they've lost their mind. Get them straight. Jesus says, nope, this is what I want you to do. God is going to glorify me and glorify himself in me in this whole entire episode. But what I want you to do is to love each other, you family. I'm done now because I want to ask the question, Great Little Zion, are we really family? Yeah. That's, that's a better response right there. We're working on it. See, Jesus says family, I don't care how you cut it, don't have clicks. They don't have social gatherings in their community. They don't have groups where we belong to. I challenge you this morning, can we really love one another, even the slick, the sly, the manipulative, the liar, the thief, the person we know? Because the church community is deemed by God to be a healing community. But I don't want a physician or people working at healing me while underneath the covers they're cutting me. At least when I was in the streets, they never went under the covers. They cut me right to my face. I knew exactly what I was going to get. But when we come to church, if there are some actual liars, it's us. We can lie real well to each other in church. We managed to find a way to do it in the name of the Lord. We cut up each other. We wound each other in the church where people come from outside to try to find help and wholeness and peace only to discover that they may leave out more injured than they did when they came in. And listen to Jesus' words. I want you to express love because by this, men will know that you've been with me. That means that if they come in and see you wounded, what I want them to see is each one of us helping to patch up and to administer and to help heal the wound. Not cutting it open and taking the scalpel and digging deeper. Jeremiah chapter 8 where the prophet is looking at Israel and in a metaphorical sense Israel is bleeding and he goes back and cries before God is there no bomb in Gilead is there no physician there if not why does not the health of the daughter of my people recovered translation New Testament if we know Jesus so well why are we still sick Why are we still struggling? 
Why are we still lying and conniving and hurting and injuring one another? Why? That's what Jeremiah is asking. When you got it on the inside of you, you got the healing love of God residing in you, let it go. Let it flow. Or better yet, as Big Mama told them, stop pointing fingers and ball those fingers up and fight who creates the tension and friction among us, says verse 2, Satan. Satan, that's what verse 2 said. He got into Judas' heart. And I do believe that Satan can get into the heart of a believer and can turn our lives upside down. Which is why the Holy Spirit in the word tells us that we have to be discerning of the various spirits that we come around because you've got to try the spirit by the spirit. And I do hate to tell you that everybody in church ain't saved. They just coming. Oh, as Paul was said in Romans 12, I think they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. It just means that they religiously know all about that. They got the right words, know the right things to say, know how to shout, when to shout, when the musician play, know how to get up, but they don't know God. They don't know the Lord. And so verse 34 and 35 is Jesus' command. In fact, he demands, y'all, you need to love each other, and I want to see it now. And I challenge you on this day as I discern from motherhood. Mothers don't, they do have an option, but it's hard to give birth to life. I would assume, I've never given birth to life. But I would assume carrying a child nine months and then giving birth, it's hard not to love this glorious creation. Have you ever thought about the miracle that a woman's body can do? It's miraculous. What starts out as a seed that cannot be seen with the naked eye grows into a human being. And only her body is divinely designed to carry for nine months a growing human being. Only her body can do that. And it's a miracle in itself that she is close to death that death can be when she's giving birth. When her birth canal opens and she is wide open and susceptible to every possibility of infection possible, and yet she births out life. And then if she can't do that, people think that a sincerian section is a bad thing. That's a, that's a miracle. And that when you know the physician knows exactly where it has to be cut and bring life. And that's the reason why we have to understand the importance of respecting what mama has done. Listen to me. Listen, listen to your pastor very clearly and then I'm done. I, I'm, I'm hungry and I want to get up out of here. Listen to me very clearly. Man, there's some things my mama have done and said to me, boy, if she had been anybody else but my mama. You hear me? If she had been anybody else but my mama. If she had been anybody else but my mama. But because she's my mama, and every time I look at her, I got to remember, if it had not been, I would not be. Even when mama is wrong, and I know, I, I know I'm not the only one who can say this, even when mama is wrong, dead wrong, I mean, I know you're wrong, mama. I, I know you're wrong. I ain't going to say nothing. I ain't going to say nothing. You, you right, mama. If you, you right. You right. I'm not, not going to argue with you. Because I know what the enemy meant for evil. God threw mama manages to work it for the good. 
Now, she don't have the most conventional way to get you there, but she's going to get you there. And that's why I'm trying to admonish you. Feed from that love that she gives. But my mama didn't love me, didn't ever tell me that she loved me. Well, maybe your mama never had anybody to tell her that. Maybe your assignment is to love your mama in return. So she will know what it means to not only love, but she can witness what glorious creation she has been used to give birth to, to give her love like she's never seen before. But my mama gave me up for adoption. My mama gave me up because she was a drug addict. Listen, that's enough love to say, I'm not capable of taking care of this child. Let me let, me let someone else who can love her the way he or she needs to be loved. See, we're taught to think that just because someone can't do things conventionally that it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. When my mother became pregnant with my brother, she was only 14. And my mother grew up in the era where because she was 14, you knew who raised that child. It wasn't my mama. It was my grandmama and my grandfather. They took my brother from her. Why? Because that was the best thing. There's no way in the world she could have. What can you do at 14 years old? You don't have no job. Can you get a job at 14? I don't know. Can you get a job at 14? Is it 16? So you can't get no job. You don't have any place to stay underneath, other than underneath your mama's roof. You can't buy diapers. Ain't nobody going to want to babysit for you because you're 14. They thinking, you got all your world ahead of you. That's your issue. So my grandfather and grandmama stepped in. And to this day, my brother, my grandparents are deceased now, but until they became deceased, that was his mother and father. Not until they died did my brother recognize my mother as his mother. And the same happened for me. When I was born, although my mother raised me for a small period of time, I was basically raised by my grandmom in Wallace, North Carolina. And that's the only mama I really knew until I got a little older. Because wherever you get love from, watch this, listen to me young people, wherever you get love from, you make an allegiance to. That's the reason why kids are so susceptible to being a part of gangs because gang members have learned the secret to human psyche is to love them. Doesn't matter what the action is. It could be the wrong action, but they are receiving what's absent in their life. And they know how to draw them in and they give them allegiance. So on this Mother's Day, let me give you this one little piece of advice. Even though you've got more wisdom than they are, learn to listen to your children. Listen. They can give you messages that you probably don't realize are code messages. Y'all got quiet on me, but I hope it's because you're hearing what I'm saying. Because if you don't listen, you're going to start seeing that behavior change, and you're going to wonder what's going on, and you're going to realize Lil Ray Ray ain't Ray Ray no more. He done grown up to be big Ray Ray. And if you ain't careful, you're going to look out one day and coming through the door is Ray Ray and little Ray Ray right behind him. Little Shaquisha ain't going to be Shaquisha no longer. Little Shaquisha going to grow up. And if little Shaquisha is not receiving the affirmation, the love she needs as she's growing, little Shaquisha going to run into another Ray Ray out there in the street. And Ray Ray going to give her all that attention she needs. And it's going to be the wrong kind, but she's going to get it because there's a void on the inside of her heart that she's trying to get filled. And because we're so busy trying to make money, trying to make a living, trying to live a certain standard of life, we are allowing our kids to miss what we really have, which is the love that you have to give unto them. But if you ain't careful, they're going to slip through your fingers and before you know it you're not going to have little recretia but you're going to have little 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 recretias running all around you
love one another as Christ has loved the church. That's Paul's words. Love one another, says Jesus. Then all men will know that you are my disciples. And church, that's a big, that's a big order to feel. It's a big order to feel. But Jesus says, if you want peace, if you really want to live a blessed life, if you really want to live in harmony, you want to create unity, you really want to walk hand in hand, and you want to draw yourselves together as a fist to punch the challenges of life, love. Don't point, love. And watch how, says John later in his epistle, it covers a multitude of sins. That means when we recognize that a person is toe up from the flow up. But when you love them, you work through all of their differences. You push them through. And you get them to a place where they start making transformations. And when they make those transformations, they'll look back one day and thank you for not giving up on them because we all have to rejoice that God didn't give up on us. He didn't even leave us out there. He drew us. He drew us. And says Jesus, if I be lifted up, I'll draw them in unto me. Lord, help us to love that agape love, that love that stretches us, stretches our emotions, stretches our rationality, that stretches us to go beyond our comfort zones, that moves us from the place of complacency, that pushes us to meet a person where they are, that encourages us to embrace them, yet strengthens us to not only embrace but to help guide and direct them that they may witness the victory that is in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the mothers, Lord, who gathered in this room and may your favor be upon their life continuously. 